Just a reminder before we start, please subscribe and review our show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners discover the show. Frankly, it makes us feel pretty good. All right, here's the show. Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Big show today, Rick. We're going to be joined by the man who served as the campaign manager for the last Democrat to win the White House. Do you know who that was? You have to go, how far do you have to go back here? Uh, you have to go back, this is before the <laughs> Trump era. Yes, before the Trump era. Let's talk to Jim Messina today. Jim Messina, who yeah. ran uh, Barack Obama's 2012 campaign, was also in the White House uh, when the disastrous 2010 midterms uh, derailed the Obama uh, agenda, uh, we're going to talk to him about what this, uh, what these midterms are going to look like, and maybe even a little about Oprah Winfrey. I mean, who knows? But Rick, I've got a bigger, bigger story that we want to get to. And look, there's a lot, there's a lot going on here. But I something hit my inbox. This blew me away. Uh, I forget the name of the publication, but there was a list of the top, most influential, Princeton graduates. Uh, around today, and I was looking through that list, and I looked, and then they had all these various people. I think Bezos was uh, was he number two or number, one? He was one. one. Number one. Uh, Mueller was two. I mean, oh, you know, a very interesting list. But I kept on looking. I got down. They had some Supreme Court justices in there. All this stuff. And no, Rick Klein. Yeah, I think I I'm, mean, I, I think I'm in others receiving votes. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, they, Jason they, they, Garrett, who didn't even get into the playoffs this year uh, with the Dallas Cowboys, is number twenty-five. You couldn't even beat out Jason Garrett. I, I, it's a, it's a decent franchise. They're okay, America's team. You might be a fan. I, look, I, I, I'm confident that I'm like twenty-six or twenty-seven. There were, there were a lot of questionable calls on this. I think Mueller uh, could have, could have topped Bezos. Actually, there were three Supreme Court justices on the list. They made them share a spot. Oh come on. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot to do here and there was no don rumsfeld there was no ted cruz there was there was no, no cruz no george schultz uh james baker former secretary of george State. will made the list. george will did make the list which you know I'm a little jealous of that as did david remnick uh so the, the fake news i guess is uh is well represented but uh but yes you're right john i was shut out highly disappointing uh and then we had uh i mean so much to talk about impending shutdown uh s holes s houses <laughs> Uh, what, what what's going on with uh, with Bannon spending ele- was it 10 11 hours before the the House Judiciary Committee getting slapped with a, a subpoena from from Robert Mueller and then in the midst of all of that we had something we've never seen before at the White House the president's doctor came before the cameras uh, and gave us a detailed accounting of his physical and took questions for nearly an hour and and he just kept taking those questions. And you know, it hasn't happened. I mean, usually they they really say a paper, right? Right. And and I look. I think it, it, a president that understands the imagery of this and understands the moment and the questions that have been raised around his fitness for duty, his physical and mental. for healthy, both physical and mental, all of that quieted in the space of that extraordinary one hour, John. I know you were in the room for it, and it, and it seemed like Dr. Jackson, who is, we've, we've said many times, was also President Obama's physician, worked in the White House under Great President guy, Bush as way. well. Universally respected. This is not like the guy that we saw diagnose or, or, or suggested that the, pre- the candidate Trump would be the healthiest guy ever to hold the office of presidency. But Dr. Jackson's conclusions were pretty close to that. I mean, to they come were. out and say, you know, if you'd eaten a little bit healthier, he could live to be 200. That's almost Trumpian in its, uh, yes. in its boasting. But the numbers are the numbers. And yeah, he's a little overweight and looks like he's going to try to lose some weight. But his cholesterol numbers are, are very strong. Look, I know I know a lot of 71-year-olds that would, that would love to have numbers that look anything like Donald Trump's. And 
would love to get away with a regimen that in- includes basically no exercise other than golfing on the weekends. Very little prescription drugs. He gets, he takes a statin. He did a little Propecia. Propecia for the know, hair. Yeah, we learned that. That was a headline. And, and some baby aspirin. I mean, the guy's not, not on any major drugs, which, you know. And we know he's a fast food and meat and potatoes type of guy who likes his ice cream. And to get away with all of that at age 71, plus the mental piece of this. And I think the administration of a test, it's obviously not a full psychological exam, but to, to look for signs of dementia uh, and for the president to and say zero. Yeah, nothing there and for the president to say I want you to talk about all of it go go talk about all of it even his teeth are strong how a 71 year old that has yeah, no that, dentures. That kind of teeth no dentures, no dentures. that's incredible uh, so I, I took uh, some heat uh, uh, some were saying what, what did I not believe Dr. Jackson because of my questioning in, in there and I it's not a matter of not believing him. I mean, our job is to sure. is, to ask, is, is to ask yeah. questions, and and I I find the guy incredibly credible. Does that make sense? Incredibly sure. credible. Sure. Uh, actually, Rick, I once um, uh, had an incident uh, where I, I took a fall on on a foreign trip, and Doctor Jackson treated me. <laughs> uh, great guy, great guy. But but there was this one kind of lingering big picture question, uh, and here's how it went. Explain to me how a guy who eats McDonald's and fried chicks and all those Diet Cokes and who never exercises is in as good a shape as you say he's in. It's called genetics. I don't know. It's uh, some people have, uh, you know, just great genes. You know, uh, I told the president that if he had a healthier diet over the last uh, 20 years, he might live to be 200 years old. I don't know. I mean, uh, years old, he, I mean. Uh, he has incredible, uh, <laughs> he has incredible genes, I just assume. I mean, you know, if, uh, if, I, uh, if I didn't watch what I ate, I, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have in the, uh, the cardiac and overall health that he has. So he's very healthy despite those things. And I don't think that he does that anymore. I mean, you know, I mean, he's going to the White House now. He's, uh, he's eating what they're, with the, with the chef are cooking for him now and they're cooking a much healthier diet for him now and we're going to continue to work on that and make that even healthier but uh, I would say now, the answer to your question is he has incredibly good genes I, 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 I made I mean I, I just I, I fought, like I said Dr. Jackson's a credible guy okay? yeah I think that they're sneaking some McDonald's in the White House. <laughs> you have you have this I a good really authority? <laughs> do. I don't. I don't think he's just getting what they're serving him out of the mess. You couldn't have scripted this moment better for President Trump. I think to have a credible doctor come out and say this, and with all those superlatives and those flourishes, and talk about how maybe the fact that he sleeps so little—that's why he's been so successful. I mean, all of four this, to five hours a night. Yeah, that's right. Not not bad all around. Numbers you have to be happy with, and and just like so many of us, he wants to lose a couple pounds this year. <laughs> Ten to that? fifteen was the goal. Anyway. But, uh, you know, that was happening amidst, uh, I mean, with Steve Bannon marathon yeah. testimony before the, uh, well, not, te- it was an interview. It was, a, it was a closed interview, so we don't know exactly what was going on. But we know he was there for more than 10 hours. We know that he invoked executive privilege and wouldn't talk about uh, uh, certain conversations. Um, but, uh, and we know that we, we, we have subsequently learned that Mueller slapped a subpoena on him last week. I'm told, by the way, um, shall we say by somebody familiar with Steve Bannon's thinking, that he fully intends to cooperate uh, with Robert Mueller. Uh, but, it's, it, but it's interesting that, that Mueller decided to, uh, to go the subpoena route, maybe as a negotiating uh, a tactic here. But, but I thought that was very interesting. Is Bannon playing these two investigations off each other? Because the, the word that came out of Capitol Hill was a lot of frustration from Republicans as well as Democrats, that he wasn't answering basic questions, that he was invoking uh, a notion of executive privilege that's broader than, uh, than they were prepared to accept. At the same time, he is saying, look, I'm going to talk and say what I know to to Mueller, we should say in all of this, we're not clear that Bannon actually knows anything. He, yeah, I, I I don't. It's a very good point. What we know is that, uh, in terms of the obstruction possible angle to right. this, uh, one of the key moments in that is the Comey firing, 
And I've been told by multiple people that it has been well reported that, that Bannon was adamantly opposed right. to firing Comey and, uh, in fact, thought it was something of a catastrophic event. But would be familiar with the sequence of events that led to the firing. He, he, was, he, was, he, he would have been part of that. So maybe that's a potential piece of it. Haven't heard him come up with anything a, a, approaching on the collusion side right. whatsoever. Nobody has, uh, you know, he hasn't been anywhere on that. So I'm not sure he is particularly relevant, but he would have had some visibility about what was going on in the White House around that firing of, and, of Comey. And his opinions on the propriety of that meeting as voiced in the in Fire and Fury, the book. And are, in the 60 Minutes interview, 60 remember minutes where well, he yes. said it was, what, what did he call it, uh, what, may, maybe the biggest political mistake of our of our lifetime. I was mean, in fire, yeah, in, in doing the firing. And yeah. then in, in taking that meeting at Trump Tower, he had opinions about Don Jr. Absolutely. On that, that, now that's an opinion, and that's not, it's Mueller, Mueller may feel compelled to ask about it, but, uh, but that doesn't mean he had any knowledge of it. It was not a time where he was running the campaign. Uh, but it is an intriguing thing because he's on the outside now. He's had that very public uh, fa- uh, falling apart of a relationship with President Trump. President says he doesn't want him back. Uh, so there's a sense that, oh, wow, he can sing like a canary now and, and, and tell the whole story. But it's not clear that he that, that what he knows. And it's also not clear that he wants to stick it to the president or his, his inner circle. He is professing publicly loyalty to the president. But my sense is that Bannon is seeing these as two distinct events, uh, dealing with the Congressional Committee, uh, and maybe he'll be called before another committee, um, as being a an act of politics and a chance for him to kind of beat his chest a little bit and portray himself as, as, as the Trump guy. And then the Mueller investigation, which my sense is he sees much more seriously uh, and is probably not really going to play games. Yeah, and I, I think he, he knows the game better than most. I think you're right. He can't really resist on uh, on the Mueller front. Uh, and and I, I think I think this is a, it, it, it poses an interesting question, I think, for the White House as well, because how much do they try to assert executive privilege when people like him are brought in? Do they allow cooperation, full cooperation, like, been, like has been promised? Uh, President Trump himself, John, to you months ago, said, of course, he would sit down and, and, and talk to... 100%. 100% talk to, talk to Mueller uh, and his team. Now, of course, he's saying that uh, that he doesn't think that's a likely scenario. I my my sense is that it's going to be hard for him to avoid uh, talking to Mueller or Mueller's team. Uh, the parameters of the interview, where the interview is done, who's present for the interview, who does the interview, are all uh, questions to be negotiated. But you know, look, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, sat down um, to be interviewed uh, in, in, in under under similar circumstances. Uh, Bill Clinton obviously did. George W. Bush uh, was interviewed in the Scooter Libby case. There's ample precedent precedent for a president uh, sitting down for an interview like this. It seems to be hard for him to make the case that he can avoid this unless he wants to do something like invoke the fifth, which would be politically disastrous. So speaking of avoid, do we avoid a shutdown this week, John? What's your What's your John Carlin meter tell you? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, you know, I mean the darkest hours right before the dawn is uh, a great poet from uh, Minnesota once said. Um, probably a few other people said quoted that by too. John McCain quite a yeah. bit as well when his campaign was falling <laughs> apart a few times. But but that does. Do you think there's a DACA deal as part of this? Because you know the, there's, no. the, there's so so I, I I think that they find a way to get their temporary extension um, and. I think that ultimately, I, I, I'm actually, I've been kind of surprised, and I've, I've talked to a lot of people involved in this over the last 36 hours or so. Um, I still think that ultimately a DACA deal is possible. You know, certainly it looks like the firestorm coming out of the president's offensive comments in that meeting in the Oval Office on Thursday um, have 
you know, blew up a deal that was that was there at least among some of the players. But maybe that was a deal that ultimately wasn't going to pass anyway. Right. Um, maybe that is a deal that would have blown up elsewhere if the president didn't blow it up. But I sense optimism talking to Democrats and Republicans on the Hill and even at the White House that ultimately and likely by March 5th, there will be a DACA deal. So now there's a lot that can blow it up and derail it. So don't come back to me and say I predicted this, Rick. I, I I'm won't. Saying no, I never do uh, that. We, we don't tape these t- these podcasts, yeah, as you yeah. know, John. But but I, I before we move on to Jim Messina, what happened between Tuesday and Thursday? Tuesday, you're you're there in the room, right right behind Senator Flake and the and the rest of the team. And the president says that he, he first of all, it seems like he deals he, he he cuts a deal on the fly with just a deal with the, with the Dreamers flat out with Diane Feinstein. He backs off of that, but he also says, "Look, bring me a deal and I'll sign it. I, even if I don't like it, I'm going to sign it." And he's told about that deal as late as Thursday morning. And he invites the people, including Senator Durbin and and uh, and Senator Graham, who are part of this deal on on the on DACA that gets a lot of what he wanted in border security and chain migration and the rest. He gets them, he invites them down there, and their sense is they're there to close the deal. And they show up at noon, and they hear about the S word instead, and things start to fall apart. What happened between Tuesday and Thursday, and what maybe happened between well, 10 you might say and noon what, yeah, on 10 a.m. because because 10 a.m. is when the, when the uh, when the Durbin uh, right. Graham call to the White House said we've got an agreement, we want to come back down and talk to you about yeah, it. So Forget the meeting. In. What happened right before the meeting? Yeah. That, that, that blows so, apart. so, so, first of all, I, I think that there's been some kind of sloppy uh, reporting and analysis about what the president really said on Tuesday about his willingness to accept a deal. Um, he said, "I want you all in this room to come to an agreement. Bring me a deal, and even if I don't like it, I will sign it." Well, um, the 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 deal that was worked out was essentially worked out between uh, between um, Graham and Flake and Durbin. Right. Okay. So Those it wasn't were, the room. That wasn't yeah. the room. Right. Remember, in that room was also Tom Cotton, was also Senator Perdue, who both showed up unexpectedly in the Oval Office uh, two hours after that phone call. Um, also in that room is you know Goodlatte. Um, McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy. I mean, there's there. So there wasn't an agreement yet by the people in that room. There was an agreement by the most pro in the negative Dream, you wanna, yeah. amnesty, amnesty uh, side of, yeah, sure. of, of, uh, sure. of the ledger. So um, so I don't think the president was necessarily backing away from what he said when he said, you know, bring me something, I'll sign it. He wasn't saying, if you two guys in the corner bring me something, I'll sign it. He was saying that the room, you know, can come to consensus. Uh, I, I, will, I, will, I will come to an agreement. But I think that he was, uh, uh, you know, it was explained to him what went down. And we, we understand John Kelly uh, um, uh, had some concerns. Um, I don't know exactly where Stephen Miller was in all this, but I can guarantee you, I can promise you, that Stephen Miller hated that agreement, right. that, that 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 deal, that proposal that was brought in. Um, so, you know, I, I I think the president just heard from some other people, and he was and it was explained to him, and he said, no freaking way. Yeah. And now they're they're looking to put the pieces back together of a deal, maybe down the road, uh, avoiding the shutdown for now. But but really, interesting hard- group that's that's ba- trying to bang it out. By the way, you have Hoyer. Yeah. Uh, you have Durbin, the perennial number two guys uh, for the Democrats on Capitol Hill, um, and then you have McCarthy and you have Cornyn. These are not, you know, st- these are not uh, squishes, uh, but they are people that know how to 
strike a deal and have, and have shown an, a willingness and an ability to work with Democrats. So, and that's single seriousness. Too. I mean, they, to make to make the point to people, putting in the number twos means you want to get the work done. Yeah, there are rivalries, there are personalities, and all of this. And the deputies committee is what always does the work in the executive exactly. branch, for instance. Exactly, yeah. and the number twos are going to have to count the votes and, and make sure they're in touch with everyone in the caucus and the conference. So maybe there is still hope. All right, we've we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Jim Messina who uh, top republic <laughs> top democratic strategist who of course served as the campaign manager for Barack Obama's re-election campaign in 2012 when we come back are you feeling limitless i don't think i've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere but i'll tell it now welcome to no limits i'm rebecca jarvis are you a psychiatrist <laughs> No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba. Ariana Huffington. Issa Rae. Barbara Corcoran. Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, Some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. And you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and subscribe today. All right. Joining us now is Jim Messina. He was uh, the White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations under President Obama. And of course, he was the uh, campaign manager for Obama's 2012 presidential campaign. Jim, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Wow, that was a, an entirely different era. It seems like it was a million years ago, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. I now feel like, you know, the last year has been the longest decade of my life. <laughs> so I, I wanted to check in with you because I started to notice something um, really, really over the past week or so. Um, I detected talking to uh, Republicans who were working very hard on the uh, on the midterm elections, trying to limit the losses, um, I, I started to detect a real serious shift in pessimism towards towards mo- being much more pessimistic. Republicans had talked about uh, this, of course, being historically tough. An incumbent uh, president, uh, you know, usually gets dinged in in, in his uh, first uh, midterm uh, elections, but. The sense I'm getting now from Republicans is that they think the House is effectively gone. And the question is, is it a tidal wave where they lose more than 40 seats? Or is it, uh, you know, basically something where they lose uh, just enough to lose control? What is your sense? Well, it's interesting. What history teaches us is that the midterm elections, to your earlier point, are based much more on the president's approval rating uh, and then where the swing independents go. And, you know, as you noted earlier, I was White House Deputy Chief of Staff when we lost 63 seats in the House and control, and then two years later uh, won an electoral landslide for re-election. And so these things can change really quickly. You know, a lot of people look at the, the generic Democratic number. Numbers. Uh, and there's a pullout today giving us an 18-point lead in the generic ballot, which is historic. Um, but what the history also teaches us is the generic number really doesn't matter until 
uh, about August of the election year. Uh, and again, it's pretty much tied to how Trump is doing. Um, currently, his numbers in these battleground states, and before I went to the White House, as you know, I ran a series of red state Senate races where we won in very tough states. And you know, the president approval rating really matters there. And if you look at these battleground states in the Senate and the House, Trump is just cratering with these independents who are the key to the election. That said, let me just sound a note of caution for Democrats. First, you know, the the turnout issue in non-presidential elections is real and it's really difficult for Democrats. Our voters, younger voters, minorities uh, are much more, much less likely to vote in non-presidential years. Um, the electorate in non-presidential years tends to be older and whiter, which favors Republicans. And then, you know, this this gerrymandering thing in the House is really true. I mean, we have not seen some of these seats in play for a very long time because they have been so well redistricted. And I'm not saying both parties don't do this. When I was a young operative, I helped gerrymander the Montana map to give Democrats control of the state house. So I get it. Um, but if you look at some of these districts that we're competing in, they're districts where Democrats haven't competed in in 10 years since really the 06 cycle. And that's why uh, these retirements are so important, right? These seats are so much easier to win if there are not incumbents in them. And when you have the kind of historic number of retirements, and you know, I think you and I were both surprised by how many retirements we've had in the first uh, couple weeks in January. You know, you're talking about seats that you know are likely to move to the Democrats, like a seat in California, the Ed Royce seat, which they've had for you know over 20 years. Was moved from leaning Republican to leaning Democrat because he retired. These retirements really, really matter. And then the number I keep looking at is enthusiasm, right? In 2012, when I ran President Obama's campaign, I cared more about the enthusiasm gap than anything else. Were my voters more excited than Mitt Romney's voters? And when you look at that, John, that's where Democrats have a massive lead. And our voters are incredibly excited to try to uh, go and provide some sort of check and balance to the Trump administration. Uh, and in the middle of this, you know, his voters are less excited. They're having to do the, the ugly thing called governing. And when you govern, you have to make deals and make sacrifices. And that tends to make your base a little grumpy. Uh, and that's kind of what we're seeing with his voters. So, so while, politically, you know, what's... the initial numbers look great for Democrats, I don't want to get too excited yet. Well, well. What one factor here is, I think it's fair to say we have never seen, for, for all the talk of the historic average, you know how how an incumbent president fares, and uh, Obama saw it twice, <laughs> uh, midterms in the first term, midterms in the second term, both disastrous uh, for for Democrats, but we have never seen a Republican president face a friendlier map in a midterm election. Uh, both in in terms of, of, of obviously the way the Senate is uh, is aligned, you have all these uh, uh, red state Democrats up for reelection. Uh, you know, very few uh, Republicans at all uh, are facing reelection. And then you mentioned the gerrymandering. Uh, Republicans have you know have have been dominant at the state level and state houses, controlled redistricting following the 2010 census, um, have a the, the most favorable map that, that I, I, I would argue that they've ever seen. So, you know, there, there, are, there are mitigating factors to that historic average that tells you that, that, that an incumbent president gets hammered. 
That's exactly right. And then the third thing we haven't talked about yet is financing, right? Um, Republicans in the last election in open seats outspent Democrats two and a half to one. And, you know, those three advantages you just talked about, a favorable map in the Senate, you know, we're competing in places. We're trying to hold our own seats in places where Trump won by 20 points, like Montana, like Indiana, you know, like North Dakota. And those are tough seats to defend. And then in the House races, again, we are competing in seats where we haven't competed in a very long time. And to your point, you know, there's not a great bench out there. There's not a lot of people who have spent a bunch of time in the legislature and are now ready to run for Congress or having to field kind of uh, non-traditional candidates. I think this year that's a good thing, and I think a non-traditional candidate will do very, very well in the 2018 cycle. But it is certainly a challenge. So what's the danger here for Democrats? How could they blow it? Uh, well, we're Democrats, so we usually find a way to blow it. Um, certainly that was true in the last presidential election. Um, what I think, two things. One, turnout. Um, we have got to have a, a, a number uh, that is better than our comparable turnout numbers. And you look the last non-presidential election where we had a big night in 2006. We had a massive turnout, uh, especially among our our core constituencies. Uh, and so we need to do that. And if we don't, it won't. We won't do as well. And then we've got to make some real progress. Uh, with independent voters. And, you know, even in 2012, when we won the reelect, um, Romney beat us with straight up independent voters. And obviously, Trump did better with independent voters than, than Hillary. Um, and so the early numbers on independence look great for Democrats, too. But if those slide back, you know, that's a number I'm going to uh, be watching very, very closely. And, and you have the economy is another factor here. I mean, it's it's actually extraordinary, isn't it, to see a president with approval ratings as low as they are uh, and, and an economy as, as strong as it is. Unemployment, you know, in the, in the low fours. Obviously, there's the stock market, but beyond the stock market, um, the, 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 the economic indicators are strong. Growth is, 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 is up, and yet, and yet the president's approval rating is hovering at 40%. Yeah, and in, with some of these some of these key seats, it's below that, um, and it really is historic. Uh, and you know, usually incumbents get credit for the economy, as you know. In 2012, people thought things were getting better, and Barack Obama was reelected because of it. Um, I think Trump is a different case because he's so divisive, because he's shown the inability to stick to his own message and talk about what he's doing. We just did a really interesting six-month research project on my own dime. We went and, and looked at voters who voted for Donald Trump uh, and Barack Obama in the battleground states in the Midwest and what those people wanted and what they thought. Um, and unsurprisingly to you, the economy is the driver of almost every one of those votes. They care more about that than anything else. And their biggest worry is the president's tweets and his kind of ongoing back and forth that they think distracts him from the economic focus they want. Voters want an economic focus. When I was running the president's reelect, uh, I got a call every two or three weeks in the middle of the night from this incredibly brilliant political operative named Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. And President Clinton would say to me in his great voice, Jim, the only thing that matters is winning the economic argument about the future. And that is really true with these voters, right? 
And these voters are starting to worry that while they see all the good signs, right, they see the unemployment numbers, but as you know, that doesn't really apply to them because they have jobs. And they see the stock market, but that doesn't really apply to them because most of them don't have stock. They kind of say, wait a minute, my life hasn't gotten better. My life is, you know, still difficult. And we are worried he's not focused on things that matter. He's too busy picking fights. And I think that's a real vulnerability for the Republicans in this election. So let, let, let's turn to you. you I, as I believe, I, I've got to look back on this. My records show you are the last, you are the campaign manager of the last Democrat to win the presidency. Is that right? <laughs> Thank you. Brother. <laughs> I'm just top of my resume. Yes, right. So uh, 2020, um, first of all, how seriously do we take the uh, the Oprah moment at the Golden Globes and the prospects of Oprah Winfrey as a uh, as, as, as a leading, maybe the leading Democratic candidate for president? Well, look, um, right now out there, uh, there is real excitement about her. You know, the Democratic world is, is talking about it. And there is a whole bunch of people that are trying to encourage her to run. Um, and, you know, is I Jim Messina one like, of those? <laughs> Jim Messina is happily uh, focused on other things right now. But here's the truth. Um, there are, at last time I counted, 24 different people considering running for president as a Democrat. And I've met with three-quarters of those people um, and just kind of talked to them about what it takes, what you need to do, et cetera. And, uh, you know, th- the good news for Democrats is there's 24 people uh, thinking they could run for president. That's a historic bench. That didn't work you too know, well the for famous... the Republicans, by the way. No, they, only had, they, had well, 17. they won the White House. Well, yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess this is a good point. It was pretty painful. Um, you know, yeah, it was pretty painful. Um, and the last time we kind of had this was in 2008, you know, where you had great candidates. So you got all these people thinking about running. My advice to them, which is what I would say to Oprah as well, is first focus on the midterms. You know, focus on the midterms, not just in the congressional races. The most predictive thing of the next presidential history teaches us is the governor's races, right? And you have governor's races up in some of these battleground states that are a very big deal to whether the Democrats can win the White House. You know, we have great chances in Ohio, uh, in Wisconsin, in Florida. You know, uh, we just won Virginia, which is crucial, open seat in Colorado. Um, all of these things are, you know, really big deal. Last night you had, you know, a bunch of special elections uh, in state senates around the country, one in the great swing state of Wisconsin, where Democrats won a state senate seat they hadn't held since 2000, that Trump won by 25 points. You know, that says that some of these elections are going to be really crucial. And so I'm really focused on the governor's races. You know, I'm not that good at math. I know John John's a little better, a little better at math than I am. But but are you saying that you've actually met with 16 different potential Democratic candidates for president? Or their people? Yeah. Or their people. people? Yeah. Who are they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there will be no. Su- Give us a dozen. Come on, a dozen. just a few. Come on. come on, just a couple. I mean, come on, it's not a big deal. There's that many of them. What's the big secret? Do you see? <laughs> right. Exactly. But. Jim, do you uh, see it? Now? Is, is I'm re- I'm retired from running presidential campaigns, so I can be honest. That's what I mean. It's an amazing thing where I can just tell them what they think, what I think. So I know you say focus on 
focus on the Gov races and the midterm races and all that. But do you see a first mover advantage for someone? I mean, we have one candidate now, John Delaney, the congressman from Maryland. But do you see a, a, an opportunity there for someone to get out there? People are clamoring to see real opposition to President Trump, as you know. Yeah, I, I guess I don't, because um, I think a couple things. One, there's so many people, and, you know, while they haven't announced, if you go to any Democratic dinner in the battleground states, you're already seeing some of these people, right? Um, it's no surprise that you're seeing, you know, Cory Booker and and Elizabeth Warren and Tim Kaine out there doing dinners and all that kind of stuff. So I don't, uh, I don't think first mover really has that big of a deal. Um, uh, I think Democrats want to want to make sure you're doing what you need to do in in uh, the midterms. And people forget in 2006, the most requested person in the uh, for Democratic dinners was Barack Obama. And at the time, no one thought he could be Hillary, and he went to all these places and really started building a, a movement before he ever announced. Um, I think if he would have announced that early, people would have thought he had his eye off the ball. So uh, I think you're going to see people do that. However, that said, there's also the kind of ongoing races that are important for donors and for staff and uh, for starting to you know get some of these key relationships and um, and it's interesting of the 20 some candidates, you know, with the exception of the of the former vice president, you know, there's not people who've run a national race before. And I remember in 2008 when Republicans uh, picked uh, Sarah Palin, and for the first 48 hours, you two will remember that it seemed like an amazing pick, and she had that great first press conference, and everyone was panicking. And I remember the president at the time, Senator Obama, put us all on the phone and said, "Look." It took me a year to figure out how to run for president. It is really hard, uh, and it's going to take her more than two days. And that turned out to be very, very true. And I think a lot of these people are out there trying to figure out whether really running for president is, is doable. And my very first thing to them, you know, I asked them two questions. Number one, do you want to put your family through hell? And number two, what is your vision for the future? Because right now there's lots of discussion about, you know, this person can be Trump, this person can't be Trump. None of that really matters right now, because the truth is we don't know, um, A, what the president's numbers are going to be, and B, if he's running. What really matters is the kind of economic and long-term vision of the future that Bill Clinton talked to me about in the middle of the night. One year into the Trump presidency, the Democratic Party is better, worse off than you thought it would be. There's a lot of challenges ahead, a lot of frustrations and a lot of intra-party warfare. Where, what's the state of the Democratic Party in your you know, quarter of the way into the Trump era? Um, I think the Democratic Party is better than I thought it would be, uh, if only because there's nothing like opposition to, to pull you together. And that was certainly true under the Bush administration, where, you know, I worked in the U.S. Senate and we had a very fractured caucus, except for there was real opposition to a bunch of the stuff Bush was doing, like the Iraq War, like Social Security. So that stuff all pulled us together. Um, and, you know, Trump kind of papers over a bunch of our divisions in the short term. But I would agree with you, going forward, we still have real divisions. And, you know, if we have a really divisive kind of view 
uh, of ideology in the Democratic primary for president in 2020, I think our party would be ill-served by that. And right now you're kind of seeing a lot of this be debated in uh, in the Beltway, right? Should we be more moderate to appeal to the middle, or should we be more energetic to kind of appeal to the Obama voters who weren't excited about Hillary? And I think that is missing the point completely. I think what really matters is to lay out an economic vision for the future. All right, so uh, we got to let you go, but one more question. You are all over the world these days uh, working on, on campaigns in Spain, France, Italy, the United Kingdom, Mexico, conservative party in, 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 in Great Britain. So I, I, I want to ask you a generic question, which is how is Trump playing in these races? And, and specifically, you're, you're working right now, if I'm right, on, on, the, uh, on the presidential uh, race, uh, the campaign in Mexico, right? How's Trump playing in Mexico? <laughs> Uh, President Trump is about as popular in Mexico as, um, you know, charging more for for uh, for beer. Um, it is unbelievable. President Trump has become the most divisive political figure in the world. And in all the places I've been, UK, France, Italy, Mexico, you know, what is true is his domination of, of the media coverage here is true around the world as well. The week before the general election in the UK last year, uh, President Trump was discussed on social media more than the, than the two major candidates the week before their national election. Um, I think President Trump made a very wise decision this week to pull down his UK trip because I think he would have been greeted by historic protests. Um, and, you know, but what you're seeing around the world, though, is kind of an extension of the Trump phenomenon, right? You're seeing the this populism wave kind of ride around the world as, as people struggle with these economic issues that, you know, pol- politicians have yet to find great answers for. There's not great answers for where jobs are going to be in the future. There's not great answers for what technology is doing. There's not great answers for how you, you know, create a modern education system. And so, you know, voters in these countries are swinging between ideologies trying to find some of these answers. And it is really becoming destabilizing uh, for, for you know, the political systems in some of these places. And that's why you're seeing kind of outsiders like Trump win, like Macron win. We were proud to have a role in Argentina where uh, the mayor of Buenos Aires, who was an outsider, won. And, you know, all those things are kind of an extension of the, the, the Trump phenomenon. Um, but looking forward to 2020, you know, I think uh, what world politics portends is is an even more brutal election in 2020, no matter who the Republican nominee for president is. Wow. Okay. So more brutal. I, I, having lived through and survived the 2016 campaign, I, I want to know what that looks like. All right. Jim Messina, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. See you. So, uh, Rick, I mean, that's not really possible, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> until it is, I guess. I, you know, we're, we're pressing new boundaries all, all the time. I am struck that, that, that Jim thinks the Democrats are in a better spot. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of optimism right now. But, you know, when you look at that potential field of 24 or so, 
and you realize the ideological differences and the stylistic differences, uh, and you remember the wounds that are still carried through from the 2016 primaries, to say nothing of the general election and the disappointment there, the Democrats really haven't made leaps and bounds in trying to find ways to, to bring themselves together and, and unite around a, mis- a message or a vision. They know they're against this guy, and that's the, as Jim said, that's the easy part. But the hard work of, uh, of trying to figure out how the party defines itself, except in opposition, I, I don't feel like it's even started. No, and uh, and I really want to know when, when are we booking the uh, the Oprah interview? Because I've, I've got some questions <laughs> about get, Oprah's let's politics. Go, let's get Dave Ryan and Avery on that right away. <laughs> I mean, come on, totally uh, undefined. You're right. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, maybe, maybe that's what it takes. All right. Well, that's all the time we have now for Powerhouse Politics. A special uh, uh, thanks to our incredibly talented and gracious team here: Avery Miller, David Ryan. All right. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>